Welcome to our Didache Divine Service. Our session 22 is the last one on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, not that we won't talk about prayer for the rest of the time. Uh, the catechism is an organic whole. It's not a linear uh, set of disconnected doctrines, but it is all of a piece. So we will be singing hymn 766, stanzas 1, and then 7 through 9. So it takes in the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, and then the 6th and 7th petitions, and the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Today's uh, reading will be the stilling of the storm, which we will proceed directly to after the hymn uh, as our final extended narrative in our discussion about prayer, and then we will look at each of those last two petitions, the sixth and the seventh petition, and the conclusion. So the hymn is 766, stanzas 1, 7 through 9. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, through your Son, you have promised us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Govern our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that in our daily need, and especially in all time of temptation, we may seek your help, and by a true and lively faith in your word, obtain all that you have promised. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hymn 766, stanzas 1, 7 through 9. Our Father, who from heaven above
Let us turn to Mark chapter 4. It will be verses 35 through 41, an account sometimes called the stilling of the storm. I have some extended notes for us, so we'll read through the text and then work through the text in conjunction with these questions and bullet points. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. When evening had come, Jesus said to them, the disciples, let us cross over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boats as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, why this narrative? Well, there's a lot of reasons. This narrative touches on many of those foundational themes concerning prayer that we spoke about at the outset of our discussion of the Lord's Prayer, that the Word of God is the foundation for, for prayer, that prayer is the voice of faith that claims the promises of God's Word, that God does not hear our prayers because of the strength of our believing, but for the sake of his Son, Jesus Christ, who has opened the kingdom of heaven to us. So prayer is the voice of faith in the gospel. The gospel is the basis for our access to God, not our works, not our piety, not our, the fact that we don't have doubts or we don't have fears. No, the gospel of Jesus, forgiveness, life, salvation, grace to us in his death is how we have access to God in our prayers. Now, there is a kind of prayer in this narrative, isn't there? What is it? Can you give me the words? Uh, that, that's Jesus' word. I want a prayer. Uh, Polly. Teacher, do you not care we're perishing? Does that sound like a prayer of confident faith? No. Not at all. It sounds like a prayer of great despair, doesn't it? Like as if it is filled with a lot more unbelief than it is confidence. Now notice Jesus' reply. If you're not going to have any more faith in me than that, you can just perish in the sea, right? Right? 
Is that what he says? No. No, he doesn't. Instead, he says, peace, be still, or literally, silence to the wind and the wave, and there's a great calm. So I have a couple of bullets here. This Bible reading is chosen because of the disciples' prayer of despair. Here he answers them, though they do not pray rightly, do they? And he answers them, though they do not pray rightly. Isn't that comforting to you, Kathy? No. It isn't comforting to you? No. So do you feel like you pray always rightly? No. No. So isn't it comforting the fact that he helped them out, even though they were all messed up? Well, isn't that comforting? Yeah. That's what I want you to see. Okay. Okay? okay? So if you find yourself to be like the disciples, that ought to be comforting. Please turn off all cell phones and pagers. Tom. When you see your death looming before you in a storm like that, that's different than saying we're out of the plane. All we have is this dream. When you see death looming before you like a storm like this, that's different than we're out of wine. I don't know. It depends on who your you know, mother-in-law is. Maybe she would, uh, maybe that would be a fate worse than death. You know, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, the, the changing of water into wine seems so rather trivial, doesn't it? Uh, compared to this storm that Jesus stills. But I want you to see here, teacher, do you not care we are perishing as a kind of prayer of despair and also an accusation against the Lord that he does not what? Care or what? Love them, have compassion for them. And do we not think the same things at times in our lives? Do we not, in the midst of difficulty or hardship or prolonged struggle with something, do we not sometimes think that God does not care about us, that he does not love us? Okay? Not true, but that's what the old Adam, the sinful flesh, believes. But here I just, before we go deeper and deeper into the text, I want you to see the good news here uh, of the gospel. You know, the, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. So here, in spite of all this swirling doubt and fear and unbelief, Jesus says, peace, be still. And those words are words of gospel. It is as if he were saying, your sin is forgiven. Do not be afraid. And that word gives what it says, forgiveness and faith and takes away fear and gives comfort. All right. Now, there have been a lot of false teachings about this miracle. And I speak of the ones that I especially heard in sermons and stuff, even as a kid in the Lutheran church. Like... You read the stilling of the storm, and then you have this message. You see, if you have enough faith, God will answer your prayers and still the storms of your life. But wait a minute. We ought to pay attention to the text. There was great faithlessness in the disciples. Yeah, he stilled the storm here, but it wasn't on account of their faith. We don't have enough faith. Um, 
You remember the third article of the Creed? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. The Holy Spirit has to call me by the gospel. Jesus proclaims the gospel when he says, peace, be still. And by that word, he calls them to faith. Second thing I wrote in the bullet there of a false teaching, the stormy sea represents the problems of sickness, famine, pestilence, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. Well, not exactly. The problem is that fixing sickness or famine or pestilence and any other hardship on our terms does not address the problem of faith or our need for salvation or the judgment of God's law against us. Remember what we talked about, the will of God and our will, that prayer is not saying, Lord, if you love me, you will do what I want. That's like the child who says, you don't love me. Did your girls ever say that to you, Wally? You don't love me because you don't do this for me. You don't give me what I want on my terms. Okay? Prayer is not bending God's will to our will, but asking him to make his will our will. Okay? So so we have the false idea that fixing the problems of life, and I want the problems of life fixed too. So I'm, I'm in the same boat. But solving the problems of life does not answer the greater issue of our need for confidence and reliance upon the Lord, resting in his salvation, in his forgiveness. Uh, Under the theology of the cross, great teacher Herman Sasse, in explaining this, said, sometimes we can see no good someone lying in a nursing home for months or years, but God might see in it the greatest good. How can that be? God might see that sickness and weakness and poverty and famine might be far better for us in the service of ultimate faith in Christ and reliance upon him than having the problems fixed as we think they should be fixed. So here again, the idea of fixing the problems of life, if we're sick, Lord, bring healing and renewed strength to my body, if it be your will, or grant me this, if it be your will, yet not my will, but yours be done. All right, Uh, so some of the issues there, at the end of that bullet about false teaching, when I talk about problems, our need for salvation or the judgment of God's law against sin. Most of the problems in the New Testament Gospels that Jesus fixes are literal miracles, but the problems themselves are signs of a greater issue. For example, he healed, he literally healed of blind people. But their biggest problem was not nearsightedness. Sight is equated with faith. 
So when he gives sight to the blind, he's opening their eyes to see the truth of their own sin, their own need, and of his salvation. Or hearing to the deaf, Ephatha, be opened. It's a great illustration of what we just quoted again from the Catechism under the third article. I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe. The Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So Ephatha, be opened. It's more than giving hearing to a deaf person. It's about opening the ears to faith. Okay? Or someone who is leprous, they were called unclean for a reason because leprosy was a sign of the corruption and foulness of sin that infects us all in every part of our being, our will, our bodies, our minds, our brains, and so forth. Um, the healing of the paralytic, the great miracle... They bring the paralytic, paralyzed man to Jesus. And you'd think his biggest problem is he can't walk. Not so. His biggest problem was sin. And Jesus shows that. He sees the paralytic and he says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And he's still paralyzed. But he really had his sins forgiven by Jesus. Well, they grumbled and complained. Because who does he think he is? Forgiving sin. Well, that's the reason he came into the world. Then he says that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said, rise up and walk. So rising up and walk was to show that he had the authority to forgive sins. This is, these are, we could go on and on with examples like this. The problem is not paralysis. This is a problem with the faith healers. Do you see how Jesus made the lame walk? And so that is the purpose for coming to the tent revivals is to have your I do away with your glasses. Peter, you can see if you have faith in the Lord. And if you pray hard enough, then you can get your sight back. Well, that's not true. I will one day in the resurrection. The problem with faith healing, have you ever noticed that? Everybody, even though they are faith healed, eventually kicks the bucket. It's true. So I guess maybe we better be prepared to kick the bucket whenever that time comes as the one thing needful. In the resurrection when there's no sin, then we'll be able to enjoy everything of life without making an idol out of it. Do you ever think about that in terms of heaven and being delivered from the corruption of this life? Because of the corruption of sin in this life, invariably all kinds of good things become idols for us, things we trust in more than more than the Lord. So when we go into the sixth and seventh petition, lead us not into temptation, which if you're listening to the sermon yesterday, the foundation of temptation is this lie. You can't trust God. And isn't that where the disciples were? They were not trusting the Lord. Where there's faith in the Lord above all things, there's the absence of fear, anxiety, Distress. So you see how our greatest malady is the faithlessness of our heart, even as Christians. Okay. So when you're stung in a sermon or you're stung in catechesis about a, where you, you, you feel your sin, be of good cheer. That stinging effect of the call to repentance and the judgment of the law is for our good, mine and yours as well, that we see our true need as the disciples were to learn through this, 
and by his word of forgiveness for us in our need to have faith renewed and be drawn closer to him. Will your, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit for faith's sake to those who cry out to him. Tom, did you have a question? Yeah, with all the miracles that Jesus did with the wine and with standing up and saying, be still, and Lazarus rise, there's one in which there's a blind man where he, he knelt down, put mud in his hands, and spit on it. Yeah. Everything seems like there's some meaning to it. Was there? Well, well sure. Let, uh, he's talking about all these miracles that Jesus did, and then he's pointing out the one with the taking spittle and clay and then his own spit and so forth. It's a wonderful, uh, there's a number of connections there. You see how the use of earthly elements like this clay, um, you think of the sacraments, earthly elements of water and bread and wine. But what what are human beings made out of but the dust of the earth or clay? What animates our life? How do we receive life from God through water and the word all of which comes out of the mouth in the spittle and the word. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit in the upper room. He also breathed into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being. So you see spittle and breath and, you know, so you can swim around in those things. But let's get back to this text. Okay. Now, uh, biblical imagery helps us understand the truth. Raging seas. Now, I put the answers down already, but... Think about raging seas in the Bible, right? The first great raging sea is the flood. It was such a raging sea, it wiped out the whole planet. Was it judgment? Absolutely. Against unbelief? Wickedness? Absolutely. It was death to the unbelieving world. It was the waters of divine judgment. And yet the Bible says, for Noah and his family, eight souls and all, it was Not judgment, but salvation. That's right. Eight souls saved through water. I have to wonder what they were thinking when they were on that boat and everything was happening the way it was. Wow. Uh, The next one, the Red Sea crossing. Now, this doesn't involve a boat, but it does involve raging seas, particularly as the waters collapsed in upon the Egyptians and their chariots, and Pharaoh and his army was destroyed. Again, judgment for the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, his unbelief, yet salvation for the children of Israel. But what's interesting, if you were listening to Bible class yesterday, where we had this account, the unbelief, the hardness of heart, was not just with the Egyptians, the children of Israel, Were there not graves in Egypt? You brought us out here. Didn't we tell you to leave us alone? (laughs) So what do they want? Again, the idolatry of the appetites of the flesh. They ate better in Egypt. They had more variety of foods in Egypt. And now we're out here in this wilderness, this what they considered God forsaken. And if you came down the Sinai Peninsula to the Gulf of Aqaba and then crossed over into the land of Midian where Sinai was, it is, I mean... We would call it God-forsaken today because it's dry, arid, and so forth. Okay? So what's interesting there is, on the one hand, that Red Sea was judgment for the unbelieving Egyptians and yet salvation for the children of Israel. Here again, not because they had strong faith. 
And what the Lord said there is very similar to what we have here. Stand still and see the salvation which the Lord will provide for you. Literally, it's hold your peace, or like he says to the winds and the waves, silence, be still. Okay, and there was a great calm. Uh, the other example given here was of Jonah. Now, here in Jonah, he was running away from the Lord in abject doubt and fear. You see how all of the... Now, I'm not encouraging you to abject doubt and fear, but do you see how these things are comforting? So if you feel weak and spiritually, you know, uh, paltry, you're in good company. Okay, you've got the children of Israel. You've got even Jonah the prophet. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Because it'll be just like the Lord. I'll preach to them and they'll repent and then the Lord will forgive them. I don't want to do that. That's, that was Jonah. Okay? So the old Adam in him needed to die or be drowned as we start to look forward to our extended discussion on baptism in the next few weeks after today. But what happens? There's a raging sea and the sailors are desperate to save the ship. Where is Jonah? He's asleep in the ship. Sound familiar? Jesus was asleep on a pillow in the stern, right? And finally, they wake him up. Say, what's going on here? Kind of like, don't you care we're perishing? They say to Jonah, what's to be done? And he says, throw me into the water. And that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will die and be raised the third day. Which means the raging seas are not about if you pray enough prayers, all of the problems of life will go away, your 401k will skyrocket, you'll, have, you know, you'll pay off your mortgage earlier, uh, you, you won't get sick of anything. Susan, you had a question. Yeah, right. He knew God was right, and he said, I don't like it. <laughs> See, you can, find, you can find your sinful frailties anywhere in the Bible. I mean, depend, you just pick the person, and you'll, you'll find a match. Okay? But what this miracle is about is the grace of God for sinners such as that. All right. Um, drowning. Drowning signifies the spiritual death of the unbelieving nature. Peace be still, or literally silence to the wind and the waves, signifies, out of the word, uh, signifies the word of the gospel, Christ's absolution. Silences the judgment of the law and the accusations of Satan to give us the peace of God. So raging seas in the Bible are, they're literal, but they're depictions not simply of general problems of life, but of the judgment that we deserve for our sin. So 
Jesus wasn't hurled into the raging sea of Galilee on this occasion. But he was hurled into the raging sea of judgment, wasn't he? His baptism in the water of the Jordan culminated in his death upon the cross where the raging judgment of God's law and the accusation against the sinner and the condemnation of hell came upon him. So I want you to understand the raging seas in this, these terms. That those raging seas depict divine judgment against sin, the condemnation of the law, the accusations of the evil one, they must die because of their sin. In the Gospels, Jesus is in the boat on this occasion. What's another great miracle associated with the Sea of Galilee other than this one? There is the, the net, that's right, where the people are um, the fish. That's not about trust in Jesus and you can make a great living as a fisherman. That's not the point of that. The point is I will make you fishers of men. So people, sinners, are taken out of this world of judgment and brought into the kingdom of God. See, that's what that's about. There's another one. The walking on the water. What is this, a cheap magic trick? That reminds me of the joke I heard about... Uh, Donald Trump had the Pope on his boat, and the Pope's hat flew off in the water. And they were all scrambling what to do, what to do, and President Trump said, don't worry, I'll get it. And he walked on the water, he picked up the hat, and he gave it back to the Pope, and the headline the next day was, Trump can't swim. But anyway, uh, <laughs> bad joke. It has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with our class, per se, but it is not a cheap magic trick. You know, a circus act that Jesus is walking on the water. Remember that first promise of the gospel, how the heel of the seed of the woman, which is, you know, on his foot, would crush Satan's power to condemn us to hell? So when Jesus is walking on the raging seas, what does that signify? He is the redeemer from the judgment to sin and sin, death, and condemnation of hell and Satan's authority and power is under his feet. The fathers sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See how these things fit together. So when they ask at the end of this miracle, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? We can give a number of answers, all of which would be true. He's the seed of the woman who would crush Satan under his feet. He is the Son of God. He is both creator and he is redeemer. It's the great Paul Gerhardt Christmas hymn, you know, he whom the sea and wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Okay. So all of these things kind of coalesce together. And those, that biblical imagery here, peace be still, that is really an absolution. And, and this is a cool thing because Paul talks about how the whole creation is groaning like a woman in labor pangs waiting for the revelation, the redemption of the children of God and the resurrection. So when Jesus says, peace be still, really the redeeming work of Christ upon the cross not only makes possible the word of absolution spoken to you as a sinful human being, but the word that brings peace to all of creation, which is under the curse of the fall on account of man's sin. 
So it is as if Jesus is preaching the gospel or forgiveness to the whole of creation, which will be made new on the last day. Satan's attempt to destroy the world that God created will be foiled at the last. So the resurrection, you know, we're just not these ethereal spirits in heaven. In the resurrection, there's a new heaven and a new earth with some very real, concrete uh, realities. All right. Pastor? Yes, John. When the word peace is spoken, just in case you can't hear that for the sake of the recording, it means your sins are forgiven. Okay. Yeah, right. And, but yet, it seems to me, the plain meaning is directed at the waves and the wind. Yes. Peace be with you. You are not wrong. What's your viewpoint about, I have believed for the last 10 years or so, peace be with you means your sins are forgiven. And this is the point that I'm, that I'm making. The forgiveness of sins means that there is no longer warfare between us and God or the hostility of a fallen world against us, you know, that there is peace. So it very, the forgiveness of sins, the good news of Jesus' salvation is for us, and it impacts all of creation. It sets it at peace. It orders things. What the devil wanted to do was bring disorder into the world. Okay? What Christ's redeeming work does, it restores order to the world. Peace. Be still. But it is anchored in that forgiveness. That is... Every time the word peace used in Scripture refer to forgiveness? Yes. And its implications. Okay? So if, I, if, if, if David comes to see me and I say, peace be with you, it means I don't want to punch him in the mouth, which I would want to do if I were holding something against him, holding a grudge. It announces there's nothing between us as far as I'm concerned. Peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. I'm right with you. And by that word, I'm inviting him to be right with me. Okay? In the old orders, and uh, we try to recover this uh, in the agenda, but the old orders for visiting the sick, you come into the hospital room and you say, peace be with you. Because... It's the temptation to believe if I'm suffering terribly, again, like some of the false teaching, God hates me. God doesn't care. So peace be with you. That's why I, I will come into the hospital room like when you were in the darkness and that terrible, uh, excruciating headache and so forth and the lights were out. I put my hand on your forehead. I said, Kathy, receive the sign of the Holy Cross, which was given her baptism that marks you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. Peace be with you. That's declaring a reality. And that peace is intended to quiet the spiritual storm of her heart and mind.
Okay, Susan? We don't want to get in trouble here. Okay. <laughs> um, Silence! Peace of sins forgiven calms the conscience, makes peace between people and God, yes. But it also can fix temporal. It also can fix temporal or enable us to see the temporal problems of life in a completely new light. It can actually teach us to rejoice and to give thanks for them, for I wouldn't have learned some of these lessons apart from them. Yeah, God's forgiveness really does give life and salvation. The Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Jesus. That's physical, right? The body that was offered up, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And where there's forgiveness, there's life and salvation. And it begins to break in now. Um, you know, there is mental illness. There are things that happen, you know, chemically that cause depression or schizophrenia and so forth. But a lot of those things come about by triggers in life, you know, habits and behaviors, and we begin to condition ourselves into patterns of life that, that are actually the cause of the, of the chemical imbalance or what have you. So sometimes medicine is needed to correct the, the chemical imbalance so that we can get to the root of some of those problems. In the same way, you know, uh, trusting in the Lord doesn't mean you don't go to the cancer doctor for chemotherapy and uh, radiation or surgery or something like that, uh, but all of those maladies do have their point of origin in the fall into sin and the curse of the fall. Wally. Okay, well, I, I'm not quite certain what you're all getting at, but the things that you're saying are true. I mean, there's, there's different... The, the Bible uses every form of literature that we are acquainted with. Why? Because God happens to be the greatest author there was. So he's capable of imagery, analogy, etc., etc., etc. Okay, um, so... I want to move on, though, with finishing this narrative so we can get into the 6th, 7th, 
uh, petitions and conclusion uh, before we leave today. Uh, the next bullet, the strength of faith is in the object of faith. We learned this with the Canaanite woman. And the object of faith is Christ and his gift of salvation. Fear is a byproduct of unbelief. So when Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? Remember, he's really saying, how is it that you have no faith in me? Have you been with me so long and still you do not know me, he says in another place? How is it that you have no faith in me, the one who gives you salvation from sin, death, and the judgment of the law? Do not be afraid. Uh, the disciples' prayer was filled with more doubt, despair, and unbelief than it was filled with confidence in the Lord. And the Lord acted not because they believed in him, but because he is the Savior who loved them and us in his death upon the cross. Again, this is not an encouragement for you not to believe in the Lord. Faith is the passive trust of the heart that receives Christ, that believes in him. And, and you can't receive Christ and come to believe in him unless you're a sinner who have no hope in yourself. So if you have no confidence or hope in yourself or your own works or religious piety or strength of believing, you're the perfect candidate to be a Christian. Okay? So, I mean, the disciples, look at the Bible. The, the women were in a much better position, it seemed like, time and time again, compared to the disciples who became apostles. Mary Magdalene is the first to see the resurrected Lord, and she continued to believe in him even though he had died. She wouldn't stop worshiping him, as opposed to the disciples who were scaredy cats in the upper room in Jerusalem. Okay. Peace be still, silence to the wind and the waves is an absolution we've already talked about. And we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil in the confidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what this um, miracle underscores. The gospel, the good news is what God does for us, what we cannot do for ourselves, what he does for us in love in Christ by grace, through the death of his son that we don't deserve, but yet he does this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and so forth. So what I'd like you to do is turn in your Lutheran catechesis to the uh, sixth petition, uh, page 197, and then the terms are uh, also on in the glossary. Those definitions are page 318, but... Page 197. And I'll ask the questions and we'll make a few uh, comments uh, about the text. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation. Now, see this as God's promise to deliver you from temptation. And remember... At the heart of temptation, if you're here yesterday, but I mentioned it today and I'll say it again now, is any will or desire or word or voice or inclination that says you can't trust God. Don't trust him. Don't, you can't trust him. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care for you. Okay? 
Well, he ne- that's why the catechism is going to say God tempts no one. He never says don't trust me, ever. The devil does all the time. You can't trust God, but God never says that. So and lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. So God tempts no one. That is pure gospel. He never says, don't trust me. So we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us in the true faith, in Christ, in that one, our Lord Jesus, who is the one thing needful. So we pray that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the devil is an enemy of faith. Remember in the garden, did God really say, you can't trust him, he's withholding good things from you. Eat of this, you'll be like God. The world, the world since the fall, is at enmity with God or at enmity with faith in Christ. And of course, the sinful nature is as well. Paul says, I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. So there's a, talk about the axis of evil. Uh huh. It's not Korea and Iran. What did George W. say it was? Korea, Iran. What was the axis of evil? Well, this is the true axis. Since you're not coming up with it, uh, and I'm not either, I'm going to name two of them. Or it's not, it's not Germany, Nazi Germany, Italy, and Japan. There we go. The axis powers. The true enemies of faith are devil, world, and sinful nature. Pardon me? Are they vehicles of the devil? Well, the devil is not a vehicle of the devil. He is the devil. But a world where there's unbelief, there is hostility towards God. And it's in the world, and it's part of our nature, hostility toward God. So we don't want the devil, the world, and our sinful nature to deceive us or to mislead us into false belief, believing the wrong things about Christ, and about salvation, like God helps you if you have strong enough faith, and if you don't have strong enough faith, he doesn't help you. There's a false belief. Or if you really want God to answer your prayers, you've got to have 900,000 people praying for the same thing, then you can persuade him to do it. And then it doesn't happen, and then you renounce your faith and become something else. So false belief is believing wrong things about Christ, about salvation, about our relationship to God. Despair is a result of faithlessness, not trusting in Christ. Associated with despair is a sense of hopelessness. Now, clinical depression can have despair associated with it, absolutely. There is never a situation where there's not a spiritual dimension as well, as we mentioned earlier, even if there may be chemical manifestations of it. But at the heart of despair is that there's no hope for me. Okay? That may be manifesting itself in a medical phenomenon known as clinical depression, 
But it always has a spiritual counterpart, always. And so part of the antidote is you may need some medication on the one hand, and certain therapy, and especially the gospel on the other hand, that you stand right before God for Christ's sake, that you're justified, that you're righteous, that your sins are forgiven. There's nothing lacking in you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're a new man, a new husband, a new father, a new woman, a new wife, a new mother, a new Christian. There's nothing lacking in you. And that's the reality. The more we hear that message, the more it begins to alter thinking and can have an impact on us physically, as Susan mentioned. Uh, so, and it's a powerful word. I really, there's nothing lacking in me because I am in Christ. I am righteous for Jesus' sake. Okay. Great shame. Shame is when the, the devil tempts you not because he cares so much about particular sins. He tempts you into particular sins to try to undermine your confidence in Christ, to rip you away from Jesus. So if he tempts you to fulfill the lusts of your flesh and commit adultery with your secretary in the workplace, his objective is not simply the adultery, but to use that to destroy your faith. And it often comes in the form of great shame. What have I done? It is impossible for God to love me, given what I've done. It's impossible now for me to be saved. I have squandered the salvation that God has given. Great shame. Do you follow now, I'm not endorsing adultery, you understand, or murder, but what he's trying to do when the devil tempts is to get us to despair of the gospel, to despair of Christ's righteousness. Okay? Vice are sinful habits and sinful behaviors. Have you ever heard this? I'm just no good, so I might as well, let's get the vodka bottle out and... Keep drinking it down because that's all I am anyway is a drunk. So I might as well drink myself into oblivion because that's what I am. Uh, there's great shame and then it leads to vice, sinful behavior. But what the gospel proclaims to us is a new reality that is not based in us but is based in Christ. To learn to believe that truth. You're a new man, Gil. You're a holy man. You're as holy as St. Peter and St. Paul because your holiness is the righteousness of Christ. It covers all your sin. There's nothing lacking in you. The more we hear that and learn to believe that, the more powerful that is in our lives. So in our prayers, these are some of the things that we're praying for. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And Look at what Jesus, he did say, how is it that you have no faith? Because you're sinful, you're in a world, the devil tempts you, and you have your own sinful flesh. But then he says, peace, be still. And there was a great calm. It's that word that enlivens faith, vivifies faith. Okay. Uh, although we are attacked by these things, namely, 
devil world and sinful nature. We pray that we might finally overcome them, including false belief, despair, shame, and vice, and win the victory, which would be to be preserved in the faith. Now, I think we've, we've covered those particular terms. Um, in the Bible, when Jesus says, uh, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, that's the, uh, a description of what's called a Christian vigil. And in a vigil, like we have our Easter vigil, or there's actually a vigil for Pentecost and so forth, what vigils involve or what watching involves is the meditation upon the Word of God, the Scriptures, the study of the Scriptures. So to, to come to Didache is part of how you are watching. And out of that, faith is created that you might pray for the very things that God gives. Okay. So one of the, one of the passages on uh, temptation... Let's go to the seventh petition, which is page 199. What is the seventh petition? But deliver us from evil. Also, it could be translated the evil one. So it's not just generic uh, evil, but deliver us from Satan, the evil one. Again, all of these petitions are first promises of God to us. Not to lead us into temptation, the sixth petition, but to deliver us from the evil one, the seventh petition. You promised to deliver me from Satan. I'm going to hold you to your word, Lord, because you promised to deliver me from Satan so that he would not destroy my faith. I feel miserable, I feel rotten, but I'm going to claim that promise. Okay, that's what prayer does. Evil one, Satan devil. In the book of Revelation, he's called a dragon. Does anyone know what Satan means? I'll give you a hint. Accuser. That's right. In the book of Revelation, it says of the angels of God and of the saints that they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony, which aren't two different things. But our access to the power of the blood of Jesus against Satan is the word of the gospel. So Satan is overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony of the gospel. Okay? Um, so what does this mean? We pray in this petition, in summary, that's in summary of all the previous petitions, continue, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. So that our Father in heaven would rescue us, save us from unbelief, save us from falling away from Christ. This petition does not pray that the evils of life, as we might sometimes refer to them, don't come. Because as we said under the third petition, thy will be done, God sends things into our lives to teach us, to make use of those things, to draw us closer to him. So we're not praying that the evils don't come, 
but when they come, that he would rescue us, our faith, and preserve us in Christ. So that when our last hour comes, we have a blessed end, which is to die with faith in Christ. Every evil of body. Sickness is an evil against the body. Whether it's COVID-19 or cancer or heart disease or high blood pressure. But the soul, this is where it impacts conscience. Uh, the guilty conscience, the, the dark night of the soul, as it's sometimes called. The deep unfectungen, that German word that where Satan in league with our sinful flesh wants to drive us to despair. Possessions. Um, if our possessions are threatened or our reputation is threatened, all of these things are used by devil, world, and flesh to destroy faith. So we're praying that he would rescue us from them. And look at how, in summary of all the other petitions, that God's name be hallowed through his word, that his kingdom would come, the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith to remain steadfast in the midst of these evils. Thy will be done, that his good and gracious will would break and hinder the plans and purposes of devil, world, and flesh. That he would teach us to, to believe that our daily bread comes to us and to give thanks for it, to trust in him, and to forgive us our trespasses as we in the church so freely forgive others because he doesn't tempt us not to trust in him. He leads us out of temptation and he delivers us from the evil one. Look at how, if you want to use a term like spiritual, but look at how all of those petitions are about the preservation of faith and life in Christ and so forth. So to take us from this valley of sorrow, a blessed end is dying with faith in Christ, the valley of sorrow, life in this world prior to the resurrection uh, to himself in heaven. Okay, uh, Wally? Well, uh, again, our access to God is through Christ. And Christ's forgiveness gives us a clean conscience. Um, uh, so, remember, there's always a wrestling match inside of us. Faith and unbelief. Okay, there's never a time to say, no, you know, finally, I believe completely there's not a shred of doubt in me. You might believe it, but you're not telling the truth. That's why we need the word of God to call us to repentance and renew faith. Petition? Yep. No, petitioning is a request. But and it's a biblical word. That's why he uses it. Yeah, but I was thinking, well, it puts you in a position. Well, position and petition are two different words. But a petition is a biblical word, and it is a request of God. And as the voice of faith, a petition claims the promises. I will deliver you from the evil one. Lord, deliver me from the evil one. So we petition him for the very thing that he promises. And that's what gives prayer its certainty, which leads us into the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer, page 201. 
What is the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you read the Gospels carefully, you will note in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel that the words for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory are actually not in the older manuscripts. That doesn't mean it's not God's word. I have, if you happen to have the catechist edition of Lutheran Catechesis, you will note that 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 29, verse 11, is part of the last words of David. Does this sound familiar to you? Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory. Forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So in the Lord's Prayer, what we call the conclusion, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever, amen, is based upon this prayer of David. In his last words, in the Old Testament church, that prayer of David shaped so many of the prayers of the Old Testament church. Just like in our prayers called colics, have you heard this before? Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Have you heard that before? You hear that all the time in the colics. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, based on 1 Chronicles 29, was a part of the termination of prayers liturgically in the Old Testament. So the words that Jesus gave when he gave the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one, amen. But when it began to be used liturgically, that old ending from the Old Testament was employed as a part of it, okay? And we do that, there's a lot of examples of that kind of thing in our liturgy today where you're splicing together things from the Old Testament and the New Testament in the prayers. But that's where it comes from. So if you, if you see a footnote in your Bible, don't be scandalized. For thine is the kingdom of God, not in such and such manuscripts. Ah! Well, it, it's in the Bible. It goes back to 1 Chronicles 29. It's a liturgical thing. When scribes are writing, have you ever done this? I do it all the time. When I'm writing, and uh, it's, Susan finds capital hymns and he's all of the time when she's proofing, even when it's not referring to God or Jesus. And that's because so much of my writing, the he and the hymns refers to Jesus. I'm capitalizing them all the time, even though Don is a great guy. He is uh, a member of Peace Lutheran. He has been here for, I am capitalizing uh, the pronouns he for Don, okay? Uh, he's obviously not the son of God, but uh, that's how those kinds of interpolations happen, okay?
okay, in the Bible. So I wanted to explain that. So the catechism explanation is really focused on the word amen. And notice what the explanation does. The petitions are pleasing to God. Why? They're heard by him, number one. Uh, he's commanded us to pray in his name, and they're heard by him, number two. Okay, so let's do that together. What does this mean? This means that I should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him. For he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. So he's commanded us to pray in this way. Pray to me this way. You know I'm not going to hear. You know I'm not going to listen. No, as I said yesterday in the sermon, Satan is a liar, but not God. So when he gives us the Lord's Prayer, he has commanded us to pray in this way, and by so doing, has promised to hear us. Amen, amen means yes, yes, it shall be so. That's the confidence of faith. All right, and uh, all of those canticles, the glory of patri, glory be to God, uh, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, the Benedictus, the song of Zechariah, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. The Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord, song of Mary. The Numptimidus, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. The Venite is the Latin name for the first part of Psalm 95. O come, is what it means. Uh, Venite adoramus, we sing on Christmas. O come, let us adore him. Venite, O come, let us sing to the Lord. And the Te Deum Laudamus, the first words of that great hymn of praise. We praise you, O God. We acknowledge you to be the Lord. So those are all prayers, and what's interesting about them is how they speak to God as a confession of faith, what he has first spoken to us, and they are words of, uh, of praise. All right. Any final questions? We're out of time before we have communion. Let us prepare for the sacrament.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. God, our Father in heaven, look with mercy on us, your needy children on earth, and grant us grace that your holy name be hallowed by us and all the world through the pure and true teaching of your word, and the fervent love shown forth in our lives. Graciously turn from us all false doctrine and evil living, whereby your precious name is blasphemed and profaned. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. May your kingdom come to us and expand. Bring all transgressors and those who are blinded and bound in the devil's kingdom to know Jesus Christ, your Son, by faith, that the number of Christians may be increased. Lord, in your mercy. Strengthen us by your Spirit according to your will, both in life and in death, in the midst of both good and evil things, that our own wills may be crucified daily and sacrificed to your good and gracious will. Into your merciful hands, we commend Larry, Jeremy, Paul, Tom, Jim, Brian, Roger, Jill, and Allison, and all who are in need, praying for them at all times, thy will be done. Lord, in your mercy. Grant us our daily bread, preserve us from greed and selfish cares, and help us trust in you to provide for all our needs. Lord, in your mercy. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us, so that our hearts may be at peace and may rejoice in a good conscience before you, and that no sin may ever frighten or alarm us. Lord, in your mercy. Lead us not into temptation, O Lord, but help us by your Spirit to subdue our flesh, to turn from the world in its ways and to overcome the devil with all his wiles. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. 
And lastly, O Heavenly Father, deliver us from the evil of both body and soul, now and forever. Lord, in your mercy. We trust, O Lord, in your great mercy to hear and answer us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We give thanks to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sins giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. At your command, Abraham prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the mountain. Yet in mercy, you provided a ram as a substitute. We give you thanks that on Calvary you spared not your only son, but sent him to offer his life as a ransom for many. As we eat and drink his body and blood, grant us, like Abraham our father, to trust in your promise now fulfilled in Christ the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. 
This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have refreshed us through this salutary gift. And we implore you that of your mercy you would strengthen us through the same in faith toward you, in patience under trials, in the fervent love for one another, and in the blessed hope of the resurrection to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.